This is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. I'm Pete Vernon. First up this week, dark days at the New York Daily News. The axe fell on Monday morning, and it was about as bad as anyone expected. Half the editorial staff at the paper, including two top editors, were fired by parent company Trunk in what they called a, quote, restructuring. The century-old publication, one of New York City's great tabloids, is left with a newsroom of about 45 journalists to cover a city of nearly 9 million. I'll talk about the impact of Tronk's decision on the journalists who find themselves out of work with my colleague Amanda Dara, who went to the Lower Manhattan Bar where Daily News staffers gathered to commiserate after the cuts were announced. Then CJR editor Kyle Pope joins to look at the big picture and whether local news has entered a death spiral. Finally, Kyle and I turn to national news and discuss whether CNN oversold its goods in broadcasting a tape in which Donald Trump and his former lawyer, Michael Cohen, talk about payments to a Playboy playmate in the final months of the 2016 campaign. Kyle thinks that it might be part of a larger trend in the cable news and larger journalism world. But first, I'm joined by my colleague, Amanda Dara, one of CJR's new Delacorte Fellows. Amanda, it's great to have you on. Thank you for having me. So on Monday, uh, we got the official word um, through media reports that the Daily News was cutting about half of its staff. And it seemed like on Twitter, we quickly found out that the staffers who had been laid off, um, some of their colleagues and supporters from around the industry were gathering at a bar in Lower Manhattan. So you headed down there, and I'm interested in what you heard from them about how the morning went down. I did head down there, and uh, one of the first uh, journalists I spoke to was photographer Todd Maisel. Um, that morning, he knew he was heading in to the office. They had all gotten an email the previous evening at 6 p.m. Um, that was the first they'd heard of it from Tronk, from the Daily News. There had been rumors swirling. Kind they had of heard the rumors actually from the Post, yeah. their main competitor. Um, and so Maisel was uh, walking around trying to get some weather pictures, he said, uh, before he headed in for the 9 a.m. meeting. And he was down by the Battery Tunnel, and there was a moment, he said, was just magical. Um, a woman was walking her dog in the rain, and right at the moment that the wind blew her umbrella inside out, her dog grabbed its leash in its mouth and gave it a yank backwards. And it formed this kind of perfect opposition. And he took a picture and sent it in, uh, really excited to file, but he didn't get any response. And then I'm guessing he went to the office. Yeah, that's such a poignant moment. Absolutely. Uh, and so he went in, he went into the office. They were all to meet in the newsroom at nine o'clock. And basically at that point, someone senior got up um, and said, go wait for an email. That was the entirety of the meeting? That was, that was the meeting. It was less than a minute long. And some of them um, say the email came, you know, be- between half an hour to an hour afterwards. So there was a lot of milling around, standing around. And the next thing that happened was some of them got emails with an appointment time with HR. And that didn't automatically mean they were fired. Some people went in and were told they were staying. Some didn't get an email at all. But for the most part, senior staffers went in first alone and were laid off. 
and told about, you know, what the severance would be. And then later on, uh, more junior members of the staff went in as teams. In your story, you mentioned that the leadership, I guess, whether it was Tronk or, or the Daily News, I'm not, it wasn't clear, but they sent away the interns to go watch Jurassic Park so they didn't have to see this? Yeah, apparently someone said they bust them out to New Jersey to a screening of Jurassic Park. And I said, that's so weird. And they said, this whole day is weird. Yeah, well, that's what I wanted to get into was uh, the the mood on the ground. I think by now, most media reporters have attended at least one of these sort of wakes for a publication, um, either when it's shut down or has a huge layoff day. Uh, I went down to the Lower East Side when DNA Info was shut down and, and know what that feeling was like. Um, but what was the attitude of the journalists that you were talking to? You know, obviously they were emotional. That goes without saying. Some were surprised. A lot of them two months ago were given a raise. So... They didn't think they needed to be looking for opportunities, and they felt manipulated. A lot of others said they weren't surprised at all that there had just been layoff after layoff, you know, round after round of layoffs. Was there anger at Trunk? Because this, as you mentioned, this for the Daily News has been an ongoing story. This is a paper that had uh, 400 reporters in the late 80s and even earlier in, in a decade ago had about 250 reporters. So... Under its previous owner, Mort Zuckerman, uh, there had been rounds of layoffs. The paper was losing a ton of money. He reportedly sold it for a dollar last year to Tronk, in addition to uh, about $100 million in in debt and liabilities. But Tronk, the faceless Chicago-based media conglomerate uh, that also owns the Tribune and the Baltimore Sun until recently, the LA Times, sent this email announcing that they were, quote, restructuring the Daily News. It was unsigned. Um, Was there anger towards... The, the corporation or was there kind of resignation um, beyond being surprised about the, the severity of the cuts or anything like that? I would say anger. I would absolutely say anger. The thing that was unique about this round of layoffs, they've obviously been through this before, but in the past, heads of each team have been consulted about who they can afford to lose if they must. This time, there was no heads up. There was no um, involvement of people on the ground. Reporters said to me um, that it felt like Tronk had just looked at a spreadsheet out in Chicago and said, okay, you make this much, you're gone, you know? So there was no real rhyme or reason to who was let go sometimes. Um, Case in point, the court's desk, they lost an editor and three reporters. They're left with one federal court reporter, one Supreme Court reporter, and a bunch of interns. There was a tweet today from a New York Post court reporter, Julia Marsh, um, saying that she saw a shaky intern today down at court from from the Daily News. The kid It says kid couldn't figure out how to get into the press room, nor did he have any clue how to check legal filings. Generally happy to help Cubs, but not about to prop up Tronk after firing around 40 hardworking professionals. Yeah, and that's the sort of thing that's going to play out uh, on the social media team, on the sports desk. Um, These were areas that seemed especially hard hit. The other thing that so many of the journalists um, I met on Monday were saying was that the actions in no way aligned with what Tronk had said their goals would be when they bought the publication. So, for example, they said that they were pushing digital, but they laid off the entire social media team. 
right? They said they're pushing breaking news, but there I saw a bunch of breaking news reporters there that had been laid off. Yeah, I mean, I think we've learned by now the trunk doesn't have any idea what it's doing, right? This is uh, an organization that went for scale, uh, bought up a bunch of big-name papers, you know, controlling some of the most kind of iconic brands in the media business, the Chicago Tribune, the LA Times, the Baltimore Sun, the New York Daily News. And, you know, it is a tough business right now. No one denies that. There are uh, newspaper organizations struggling all over the country. I think what Tronk has done and, and some of the leadership that it's had, some of the decisions that have been made, have engendered a special sort of disdain and anger among working journalists. And this is uh, a feeling, what, what the Daily News staffers were feeling, that isn't unique across the industry. Um, and I know in your story you wrote that there were other reporters from different publications there. There were people reaching out to the staffers and letting them know that they were definitely thought of. Absolutely. In fact, um, it was hard to get, you know, a bartender's attention because the phone was ringing off the hook behind the bar. Other publications calling in to try and pay for the bar tab. Um, And I know that that meant a lot to the staffers who had been laid off that day. Yeah, I think given where the industry is financially, um, everybody at any publication pretty much knows that, you know, they're before the grace of whoever our corporate overlords are or nonprofit funders, thank you, CJR funders, and, or, you know, whoever's in charge, um, that could be any of us uh, because that is where the industry is at this time. So, uh, Amanda, great to have you on, and we'll have you back a bunch of times in the future. Thanks for having me. All right, to give us a little bit more of the big picture on the daily news and the state of local news, I'm joined now by CJR editor and publisher Kyle Pope. Kyle, good to have you back. It's unusual for me to be here two weeks in a row. I know. We are. I appreciate the invitation. We are very much appreciating the treat. Uh, We just heard from Amanda about the daily news is Black Monday. And in response to those cuts, you took a little bit of a broader view about the state of the industry. Yeah, I mean... It just seems like there's been this drip of news over the last, you know, really over the last couple of years. And it just goes on and on and on. And, um, I mean, this daily news thing is was when you just look at the math and you realize, for one thing, they only had 85 news employees, which seemed at the start to be very small. Right. And they had 400 in the late 80s. Yeah. And then they cut it to 44. And, and it just seemed to me like for... We have 8.6 million people in New York City. Um, to have 44 people purport to be covering that, it just seemed emblematic of what's going on around the country. Um, and you know, this is a this is frankly, this is sort of the dirty secret of the local news problem. Because when I've gone around the country, I, I tend to grab the local paper or I talk to people about why don't you read the local paper? And too often now, people come back to me and say, "Have you read the local paper? Have you seen it?" I mean, what is it that you want us to sort of rally around here because there's not much left? Um, now, obviously, that's not universal and that there's still a lot of great reporting. But I do think that there that we are at a moment of urgency now where we can't the, – the, every day that we wait to start thinking about how do we solve this problem, the thing that we're trying to save gets more and more anemic. 
Yeah, I, when I go around the country, when I go back home to Philadelphia, although I, I should say I think the Inquirer is starting to bounce back, but at papers, local papers, even in pretty big cities, you see a lot of wire copy on front pages, or you see a really nice front page and then open it up, and the entire middle of the, the paper front section is wire copy. And sometimes, a lot of times it's wire copy that isn't even about that community or about that region. Right. So I think there's an analogy here to sort of a public health crisis where, you know, the longer you wait, the worse it gets and the harder it gets to solve. And I think that's sort of where we are now on, on the local news problem. So in order to solve this, it seems like we've arrived at kind of a few different options. One is the billionaire white knight. Uh, one is the nonprofit model. Both of those only work in certain places, and it's certainly not going to be able to save local news uh, in kind of the big picture. How do we make the case that this sort of thing matters? It seems like getting the public to actually support and pay for local news is really the only uh, macro solution. So what's the case that journalists should be making? You know, I and a lot of other people have spent the last you know, year or two like really sort of thinking about business models. Like what's the business model that's going to solve this? Is it going to be, is it, as you say, is it the sort of rich person who's going to come in and save it? Is it a sort of public or, or for-profit, non-profit hybrid? Is it a sort of crowdfunded thing or what is it going to be? And, you know, basically I'm here to tell you, having sat through all these conferences and had all these conversations, nobody has an answer. What? Uh, <laughs> there's like a million ideas, but there's no like silver bullet answer. Um, and I think these conversations need to continue. But as that's going on, I think it's more important that we need to step back and say, um, whatever the business model turns out to be that works, um, we need to start engaging much more directly with our readership and, and talking to them about why does it even matter whether you have a local newspaper anymore or a website or a TV station or a radio station, because that's a conversation that I, I think a lot of people aren't really sold on right now. Um, so, and, and it also sort of, it runs very counter to our instincts as journalists, which is, you know, frankly, baked in is some sense of arrogance, like, well, of course what we do is important. That's obvious. Right. Well, it turns out it's not obvious. Well, even in the weekend, as there had been reports that cuts were coming to the Daily News and it sounded like it was going to be really bad, I thought their reporters did a nice job kind of saying, look, these are the things we've done uh, and highlighting. We think of the Daily News as a tabloid. It's got a back page sports section. It's got um, increasingly anti-Trump covers in the last year and a half. But this is a paper that won a Pulitzer Prize in 2017 for reporting on evictions in New York City. It led the charge uh, to make sure that there was funding for 9-11 first responders. It showed basically the, the world, the Eric Gardner video. Um, there's real serious reporting that has changed lives and, and certainly changed the city at, at certain times throughout its history that 44 reporters just aren't going to be able to do the same sort of work. Yeah, and that's the, the that's the conversation we need to have more broadly. Like, how is this, how is, let, let, let's not talk about journalism as a First Amendment institution. Let's not talk about journalists as some sort of protected class of people that should not lose their jobs. Let's talk about um, how how does what reporters do 
make your life better or make you make you more informed not again not in a kind of academic way but in a real world way for instance um if you knew that the gym coach in your community was abusing kids that's important um and that's like that's central to your life as a parent there's a paper called the Indianapolis Star that was doing those stories before anybody else was if you knew that um you know that there's a there's a chemical plant in your town that's dumping water into the river that your kids fish at. That's important information for you to have. Um, there's a couple studies recently about um, the effect of local news on public health crises. So um, it turns out that if there is a virus that's in the community that people need to go get either just know about because they need to wash their hands more, or you need to get your kids inoculated against. Those things spread faster in communities where there's no local news to sort of put the word out. So that's like a real world thing that isn't about like the First Amendment or it's not about sort of journalism with a capital J. It's just about how can what we do make your make you make better decisions about your life. And that's the conversation we need to be having. And again, we need to sort of step back. And really what it's about is getting to the very roots of what journalism is about. Right. Um, ultimately, it's about informing people to to more effectively live in the communities that they live in. Right. I think we can get cut off when we talk about big ideas in journalism with attacks from the president or this big national reporting or reporting from foreign wars, things that, you know, often lead the front pages uh, on a daily basis or stories that lead cable news. And what you're talking about is an argument that's much more appealing as a citizen, kind of just saying, look, these are stories that will affect you day to day. What Trump says on Twitter might not affect you day to day in terms of a trade war having billion dollar impacts or something like that. But what's going on in your community's water source or what's going on at your kid's school, those are issues that I hope make people understand uh, why this stuff matters. Yeah, I mean, what what I what I know for sure is that um, it's not about us, um, and it's not about like it's not about that we've got our, we've had jobs cut. It's not about we have corporate owners who are idiots. Um, nobody cares about any of that because half the people in America have corporate owners who are idiots, right? Or at least they think they are. So um, you know, it's it's fundamentally about, and really, it's fundamentally about. Not just communicating this, but asking ourselves hard questions about are we telling the stories that people want to read? And, you know, we saw this play out during the um, election where you had like there's a lot of um, work after the election to look at what the coverage was about. And too often it was about the horse race of politics. It was about polling. It was about the process. And it wasn't enough about, well, what is it going to mean for health care or what's it going to mean for – taxes or what's it going to mean for schools and and I think so we have we have ourselves to blame somewhat in the kind of stories that we we've chosen to tell which is I mean there's there's a reason why people have moved away from these local news sources and it's not some you know it's it's a little bit about technology um, but it, it's not all about that because you know if if they were giving readers what they wanted, they would find them. So there's a disconnect here. Shifting gears from local news to one of those national stories that Kyle just mentioned, 
This was the opening of Chris Cuomo's CNN show on Tuesday evening. It is a big night here. I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome to primetime. We have one of the Michael Cohen tapes, the secret recording of President Trump back in 2016 made by Cohen in which he and then candidates. So, Kyle, as that news about the tapes broke, uh, it obviously led CNN's programming Tuesday night. MSNBC was soon covering it. I noticed, however, on Wednesday, the New York Times didn't have anything about it in their print edition. And when you came in Wednesday morning, you said, you know, I, I kind of thought they overplayed that a bit. Yeah. Well, for one thing, I mean, the way that he describes what the tape is, is not in the tape. I mean, you you have to read a lot into it to understand this. Um, as an isolated incident, I, you know, I, I wouldn't make a whole big production out of it. But I just think in the context of what we see a lot on, especially on these primetime cable news shows on CNN and MSNBC and, of course, Fox. I mean, I, I have joked before that, like, there seems to be a kind of, like, meme on, especially on MSNBC, where there's, an, and, and I don't want to name names, but Lawrence O'Donnell does this a lot, where he'll, he'll say things like, remember this day, June 22nd. June 22nd. This is the day that the Trump administration finally ran off the rails. And and I and I've like thought, you know, if I had a dollar every time he said this is the day, I would be rich because there's just this alarmist like this is the thing that's finally going to get it. And the thing about this tape is that it was actually what they really had was an audio version of something that everybody else had already reported over on the weekend Friday, yeah. on Friday. So um you know, but but they really went and 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 actually the, the again the clip that we played here doesn't really convey the you know very long panel discussions that followed dissecting this and literally listening to this thing over and over again to try to figure out did he say did they say check did they say cash did did I mean they don't nobody in the tape says Mr. President we have to pay off this. Um, woman because you had an affair with her. And I mean, <laughs> and there were other women also, and other women and, on... hey, we're doing this to help you out in your campaign. <laughs> no, I mean, it was all very coded. And you sort of have to, you have to um, take CNN's word that, and, and by extension, Michael Cohen's word that that was the context of the conversation, because if you just listen to it, it's impossible to say. Right. So, you know, I, I think that and by the way, I, and and we need to study this a little bit more. And we talked a little bit about this, but there even seemed to be a little shade from Don Lemon, who came after Chris Cuomo. It was like, I mean, may, again, maybe I'm reading too much into this. I, I mean, I really like Don Lemon a lot, but he seemed to be like, okay, I don't know if this is as big a deal as you're making <laughs> we'll, it. We'll run with this, but I'm not I'm totally not sure that this is anyway. I think that there is. In a, in a, for a certain, um, especially, and I don't want to, I don't want to make this all about cable news because you see it in print too. Um, but it's okay. Cable news can it right. deserves a few shots. But there is this kind of glimmering Shangri-La of of something out there that is going to be the thing that finally results in the demise of the Trump administration, and it's there, and we can sort of see it, and and we approach it. And it's like an oasis, and then it evaporates. And you're like, oh, no, it evaporates. But then you see it again. But then and there it is again. Let's month. go. Yeah. And we'll go again. And this is going to be the day that we're going to get, and then it evaporates. And, and I think that, you know, um, you develop a credibility problem. 
when you keep ringing this bell over and over and over again. And I just think we need to, I mean, look, and, and you and I were having this conversation later in the office, and we're like, even if this isn't true, this tape, we what is true and what we know is still there's still it's still an extraordinary um, mountain of evidence that this administration has been up to bad whatever, things, whatever, no good or whatever you whatever you want to refer to it as. So we don't need to we don't need to hype stuff that's not there. Well, what it reminded me of is a callback to a moment from over a year ago when Rachel Maddow tweeted out in the afternoon before one of her shows, "We have Trump's tax returns." Yeah, and what had happened was that David K. Johnston, an investigative reporter, had gotten a couple pages of one year of Trump's tax returns. And that's a nice scoop. It's something. The whole tax returns for many years are a holy grail for reporters. But by hyping it up and then spending, in her case, 20 minutes leading into it uh, before finally saying, and here's what we've got. And then that left people feeling underwhelmed. And I think it left fe- people feeling um, a little bit cheated or or certainly that was this just done for ratings um yeah that's a, a nice piece of evidence that you have there but it it isn't everything yeah we're in this like really weird kabuki dance where um one side will say this is outrageous and the other side will say it's absolutely nothing and they the, the other side will say what do you mean it's nothing about and then you know what i mean and then and there it's like everybody is so pushed to the edge and the extreme there's not a lot of appetite for somebody saying, you know, this is interesting. We don't quite know what to make of it yet. Um, could be important. Let's sort of wait and see. Let's talk about Myanmar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can imagine the cable news execs just looking at those viewership numbers plummet as they flip the channel to, you know, whoever is saying that this is either the smoking gun or this is, uh, I mean, two words that I would love to, two phrases I would love to just see retired uh, for the next several years would be nothing burger and smoking gun Mm. because we've been promised and told certain things were one or the other. And like you said, pretty much everything has fallen somewhere into a gray zone. Um, It has fallen into a gray zone. But on the other hand, we are living in, extraordinary times if you look at what we do know that's true. I mean, and this is, I think, one of the counter arguments, which is it's easy, you know, remember we've had this big debate about normalization. I mean, it is easy to just forget that, you know, even even if this, even if this tape doesn't turn out, we're still talking about the president, an affair, and depending on who the person is, a porn star. Yeah, that those three and facts to keep it quiet and hush money. So those facts are in a normal world are like would blow your mind. Right. We just left normal world behind several years ago and thousands of news cycles ago. Right. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Thanks, as always, to Kyle. And thanks to Amanda for making her first appearance on the pod. Please check out all the great work we've got up at cjra.org, including pieces about the Daily News by both of them, and we'll see you next week.